We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have an extra special guest this week, a legend of the chess world. He spent decades as one of the top players in the world. He's the nine-time Dutch national champion, won more tournaments than I can name, uh, played Anatoly Karpov for the FIDE World Championship in 1993. He's still an active player, but also an amazing author of many books. The 2017 ECF Book of the Year, Timmins Titans, is one of my personal favorites of all time. This year, he is out with it, along with New in Chess Publishing with Timmins Triumphs. My 100 Best Games. He's also, of course, an honorary editor and frequent contributor to New in Chess magazine. So without further ado, let's welcome him to the show, Grandmaster Jan Timmon. Thank you so much for uh, willing to be, willing to come on and discuss your career. Yes, that was also my pleasure, of course. Thank you. I am, I am so excited. Um, and honestly, I've been doing this for four years now. I don't get nervous very often, but I'm a little nervous um, to, to speak with you. I'm excited and nervous. But let's just dive in because you've had such an illustrious career and there's so much to talk about. But let's start with um, 
with Timmons Triumphs, if you don't mind. I'm sure it's fresh in your mind. So if you don't mind, Mr. Timmons, I'd like to start with a quote you had early in the book, um, which was that uh, above all, professional chess is now ruled by a computer. I think that in these times, I wouldn't have become a professional chess player. Knowledge has become too important. You cannot live on talent alone. So I found that very interesting. And I was wondering if you could just expound on that a little bit. Yes, I think that um, it, it's just a feeling I have. I, of course, obviously, I don't know what I would have become when I was young uh, at the moment. But uh, in the past, uh, chess was different. I mean, I also explain this in the book that uh, my uh, examples, my, my uh, well, my idols, you could say, were just uh, living persons. They, they were world champions like Botvinnik, like uh, Fischer. And uh, it's different now, of course. Uh, they they were uh, making mistakes. And uh, at the moment, you see that uh, if if you have a computer, also you, of course, work with uh, databases. Uh, you have to uh, memorize a lot. Uh, opening preparation has become increasingly important. And uh, that used to be different. I mean, there was a lot of room for improvisation in the past. You could also see this by players like Lubojevic, who were, who were improvising a lot in the opening and who didn't really uh, care too much to, to prepare variations. So, yeah, that makes sense. And you mentioned in the book, of course, and it's well known that you have an, an affinity for chess studies, for endgame type studies that are composed. And you do mention that you like to to use the computer for that. So is that a different feeling? What's And of course, you use the engine a lot in going over some of your, your great games as are shared in Timmons Triumphs, which I also enjoyed greatly, by the way. Um, so what's your feeling when you're sitting there with the computer? Does it just not feel as uh, romantic to you? Well, I, I think that if, if I use the computer for uh, my endgame studies, uh, it's, it's a blessing. It's absolutely a blessing. And I think that... Uh, that is that is a part of a romantic chess still. I mean, to compose studies with the aid of a computer makes the whole process a lot easier to do. And if I, well, of course I write books. I write for New in Chess, uh, the magazine, and, and I use the computer to analyze games. I don't use the computer to play against it. I never do that. And... Of course, you've lived through the evolution of computers. I mean, you've seen them go from being weaker than the strongest players to obviously now being by leaps and bounds the strongest in the world. Um, what has been the evolution of your relationship with computers? Well, I think that uh, I first uh, used computers uh, in the... Well, I first had my... The first database I had was, I think, in 1988. We still had for New in Chess at NickBase. Now, of course, it's all ChessBase. But uh, playing computer came a bit later, I think, in the early 90s. Uh, it was mostly uh, Fritz. Uh, and th that computer was actually not so bad. And uh, I, But still, I didn't use it that much. Also, I didn't use it at that time to make endgame studies. I started doing this actually uh, around uh, 2008. So it, uh, I have followed... Uh, uh, this uh, computer becoming stronger and stronger. I mean, when Kasparov lost in uh, 97, probably that computer was not, uh, you know, remotely as strong as uh, computers nowadays, and Kasparov shouldn't have lost. 
but uh, I think that from uh, this is what uh, what Erwin Lamy told me, uh, my, my Dutch compatriot, also grandmaster. He said that from 2006, computers were becoming very strong, and I think actually that is true because if you look at uh, Kasparov's books, and they're, they're from uh, before that time, so let's say uh, 2004, 2002. Then you see, you can you should hold in the analysis, and of course that is an easy thing to do with, uh, with uh, computers uh, becoming increasingly strong. And uh, I, I just um, like uh, this development. I have uh, Stockfish 12 uh, on my computer, so I I use that for making endgame studies. Yes, and you mentioned in the book that uh, Grandmaster Erwin Lemie, who was on this show not that long ago, he actually he helped you go through the computer lines a second time. Is that is that correct? Yes, he has a very uh, very fast computer, very good computer, and he uh, I think he uh, he found some refinements in uh, thirty five out of hundred games, which which were quite noteworthy. Some very deep variations, sometimes hard to follow. But uh, that was very helpful that he did that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, it's good that it's good that you know that the truth is sort of objectively, or the truth as we know it with with um, state of the art engines today is objectively represented now. But I also enjoyed that I felt like you had a light touch in Timmons' triumphs. It's not overrun with computer variations. That is a problem because if you work with a computer, it is very tempting to to go on with variations and give more variations and you know, not don't stop. But uh, I have made this practice uh, that uh, I stop at a certain moment and I try to uh, come up with variations that you can explain. If, if I see no uh, real possibility to explain the computer lines, I quit. I just uh, come up with something that's good, of course, that, that's correct, but uh, I, I leave that, uh, that part out. It's too complicated. Yeah, I think I, I commend you for that approach. And of course, you've played thousands of games over the years, and it, it had to be a fun but daunting challenge to pick your 100 best. In reviewing all of these games from decades past um, and with an engine, what was your takeaway? How did you feel about how you played sort of with the, the passing of time and with this, uh, these supercharged engines to, to help you analyze your, your play? I must say that I was not always uh, playing very well. I have to admit that. But the tournaments that I won were uh, actually quite good. Uh, my level of play was quite good. Also, if you look at the, at it with the computers. But I didn't always choose these games that were, let's say, uh, close to perfect. Because I always thought that uh, if you if you present the game, there has to be some element of fight and some some interesting ideas not just technique. So that it was not easy, actually, to make this, uh, this, this selection of games. For example, now, I, I know, since uh, Ullman died just recently, I was looking at my games against Ullman. I haven't included one of these games in the book, but actually I was uh, very tempted to include maybe one or two games against him. And the games are very interesting. And I will probably write about it uh, for New in Chess, at least that's my intention. 
That, that's great to hear. And and throughout the book, I was impressed with how well you remember both uh, analysis and just sort of details of the game as you as you stroll down memory lane and look at these games from decades ago. Is it is it take work for you to recall the details, or does are you just sort of immediately able to recall a venue and a feeling of a game at, at the time? Yes, well, actually, I have I have quite uh, a good uh, memory in general. So uh, th- that was, of course, something that uh, was not very difficult for me. On the other hand, I regretted actually the fact that I couldn't find all my score sheets because I, I used to note, uh, write down how long I thought about moves. but uh, And I could have included that. But I think in general, this is not not really that important. Yeah, I, that's something that Judith Polgar often did in her trilogy, and I do enjoy that as a feature, but certainly uh, Timmons Triumphs is not lacking for, for um, entertaining quality and good, uh, good analysis. Yes, that's true, yeah. yeah. I worked, uh, as, you, as, as I write in the, uh, in the introduction, I worked quite, uh, for a long time uh, on the book, uh, just uh, one and a half year approximately. That, that's great. And, and of course... As I mentioned, Timmons Titans is my absolute favorite of your book just because of the stories, but you also have some some great stories in Timmons Triumphs. And one that I thought might be fun for our listeners to hear is your story of going to the the Stockholm Cup with uh, Hans Baum. Uh, apologies if I mispronounce his name. Um, he, uh, where you talk about this was sort of when you guys were starting out and going on the road together a lot. Were you, are you able to pick up the story from there, Mr. Timmons? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, at, at that time, uh, that was in 1971. I was uh, at the moment when, I, when we went to Stockholm. I just uh, had my birthday, so I was uh, 20 at the time. We used to uh, travel a lot. Also, uh, if there was no chess tournament in a Volkswagen van, that was uh, you know actually driven by a friend of mine, a Hypnifus. He was remotely. Um, connected to chess, actually. and he, But he was a good friend of ours, still alive. And uh, Hans Boehm, uh, who, uh, who was my bosom friend, friend at the time, we, we had this habit also to go to open tournaments and then stay in the, in the van. And normally that was not very convenient. It's not like, You cannot really imagine that. I mean, it's not like you have nowadays, these luxury fans. It was something completely different. It was not that comfortable. But anyway, when we came to Stockholm, it was freezing cold in the winter. Uh, can you imagine? It's almost... Uh, uh, actually, it is the Stockholm Railton Cup. It was the first Railton Cup. It has become a long tradition. Uh, and, uh, well, it was minus, let's say, minus 10 at least, minus 15 maybe. So they advised us not to stay in the bus because you would freeze to death. So we had to take a hotel. We stayed in the Sherfart's Hotel, but of course we had no money to pay for that. I had to win the first prize. Yeah, and amazing. Actually, Sorry, I did on. quite well under the circumstances. I think this pressure was good for me. Made me responsible. Yeah, just an amazing story. So you didn't even have the money, but luckily they didn't require credit cards at the time, you said. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, I had, of course, no credit card. And <laughs> that, uh, that habit didn't exist at all. I mean, it was... Those times are completely different. So uh, it's it's a great story. I won the tournament, so I uh, didn't have to uh, wash dishes in the, somewhere in the hotel. Otherwise, I don't need, know how uh, we could have paid this hotel. But I had a very 
strong contestant also for first prize. That was Walter Brown. And I beat him in the decisive game, and then uh, I could win the tournament. <laughs> Amazing. So you mentioned you're happy with how you played, and you feel like it, it concentrated you. Were you thinking about needing to win for the money um, during the games? Uh, no, I was basically concentrating on the game. Okay. I knew that was the best approach. And I was not nervous in any sort of way. I thought it would always uh, be okay somehow. I mean, yeah. it's just uh, the way of life, yeah. It, it's not like uh, chess players nowadays when they're 20 years old. I mean, uh, their life looks uh, very tidy, very organized. So it's not like that at all in those days. Yeah, it's just... not very well organized at all. And uh, we just like to live. And uh, I like chess. It was a way to, to travel. But I loved the game already at that time. And uh, I never lost that love. Yeah, it's evident in your writing that that the love still um, still carries through. So I I wanted to read a listener question to you. Um, so the way that this show works, Jan, is that people who support the podcast are able to find in the, are able to find out the guests in advance and write in questions. And obviously, for a guest of your stature, we have lots of questions. A few from a gentleman named Han Schut, a fellow Dutchman who has been on the podcast and. Uh, played you in simuls and obviously a fan of yours um, from uh, growing up in the Netherlands. So he has a few questions, but I divided it into different parts. This one relates to Timmons' triumphs. So um, Han writes, oh, and also contributed to New in Chess Magazine, I should say, Han is. He says, you, you write in your book that I, and this is a quote, I also noted that I regularly got dubious positions with black in the opening phase. In a number of cases, this had to do with the fact that I was playing for a win with black. Sometimes I got into trouble due to superior preparation by my opponent after the Yusupov Timmin candidates corner final in Tilburg in 1986. Dvoretsky, Mark Dvoretsky, commented, a chess player of an active fighting style, Timmin willingly goes in for tense, confused positions. However, in so doing, he often underestimates the enemy threats and passes the boundaries of permissible risk. In tournaments of mixed makeup, such a tactic usually brings him success, but in battles with leading grandmasters, this trait becomes a weakness, perhaps the main one in Timmins' games. After going through all your games again, supported by the strongest engines, what do you think of Dvoretsky's statement now, especially that he often underestimates the enemy's threats and passes the boundaries of permissible risk? Well, yeah, that is a difficult question to answer. I, I'm not so sure about that. I think that... Uh... It, it, it's possible, yeah, that I, uh, in general, uh, have been better at attacking than at defending. That is basically what uh, what it's about. Because if you underestimate enemy threat, and uh, normally you're on the defense. Uh, but of course, also, but uh, what I was very good at in general was uh, taking the initiative, and then uh, I could. Uh, judged position quite well. Of course, I could uh, simply overlook uh, easy, simple things, and uh, that, that, that is also one of my weaknesses. But uh, yeah, I think that most players have that. But I haven't, actually, in my career, it happened more often. Then I think that is, that is more part of it than uh, underestimating the possibilities of the opponent. Just making bad errors. And uh, there's a tradition in Holland because uh, Donner and Oewe had the same habit, especially Oewe. Some of his games were really marred by bad blunders, very good games. And I have, the, I have what I have seen as a tendency is also 
that, that I was somehow relaxing sometimes when I was winning. And then uh, I could, let's say, let the wind slip away. But this was, it could also be because I was a bit tired or nervous. But I'm not so sure that I was uh, really not seeing the, the enemy's ideas. No, I'm not so sure about that. Okay. And I should mention that Han also mentioned that he enjoyed your book tremendously. So I think he was just trying to, to pick apart a bit of uh, the underlying psychology. It's uh, obviously uh, players, um, us rank and file players are not, not critiquing um, your game, but it's interesting to hear your, your perspective. Um, so, yes. so what was your approach generally? I mean, obviously you, you write so movingly about sort of a, freewheeling approach to chess, uh, traveling around in a van. And then as you get older, of course, you get to have some success, but still enjoying life um, as well as enjoying chess. Um, what was your study approach during those days? You mentioned you didn't like engines. So what was your approach to trying to improve um, when you worked on your game? Well, in general, I, I, was, I came well prepared. I, I, I spent hours uh, trying to understand positions, openings, positions. And uh, I didn't always exceed, succeed in doing that, but uh, very often I did succeed. I found some uh, really nice ideas in openings. And that was basically also because I was just interested and curious about it. And uh, so I, I was not like Louboyer, which I mentioned before, who was uh, improvising a lot at the board. Sometimes I improvised. Sometimes I thought, well, this is just... Uh, uh, an interesting idea. Let's try it out. Let's, for example, in this game against Ribli in uh, Nixitz 1978, I sacrificed a piece. Uh, that was an uh, idea of Vito Lynch. I didn't really study that much, but I thought it was interesting to try it out. It was new. And uh, nobody had actually looked much at that game of Vito Lynch, which ended in the draw anyway. So I, uh, I surprised. Uh, Ribli visit, and he couldn't find the right answer to board. That's a good example, I think. Okay. Yeah, and I and in another interview, I saw that you mentioned that you kind of, you had an inquisitive mindset. So, whereas you mentioned not liking engines or not loving them, and maybe you wouldn't have pursued chess to the same degree if it was all about memorization, but it wasn't, it wasn't that you didn't like openings. It was more that that you just wanted to understand the openings rather than memorize them? Is that a fair summarization? Yes, I think that is, that's a fair summarization. And I think that in general nowadays, I understand openings better with a computer, of course, because he, he just uh, gives you some, some hints at what you were missing in the past. And he also uh, is not, uh, the computer is not as uh, dogmatic as, as, as chess was in, uh, in the 70s, for example. Uh, so what do you mean by that? I mean to say that that uh, that strategy was not all that matters. I mean, sometimes there were so many exceptions to the rules and so many uh, refinements in in this uh, strategic views of the time that uh, that that everything was different. Uh, it was not the same as we thought at the time. Also, players like Fischer. Well, sometimes uh, under the impression that you should play certain positions in a certain way, but the computer proved that wrong sometimes. And that's interesting. 
So the, the, everything has changed a lot. And I think that nowadays, of course, it, it, it's very hard work. If, uh, for example, if, if uh, Giri or Caravana talks about their uh, preparation, you see that they, they spend an incredible amount of time on perf- making their uh, repertoire perfect. And, it's, and even then, it's not always possible. Yeah, and have teams working with them to help them. Of course, it's definitely a, teams to work to, to help them. Yeah, in, in general, I didn't have any uh, people that I worked with. I, in general, I worked alone. Yeah, although it seemed like you had a, a network of fellow chess-loving, titled player friends, but it maybe it was a different sort of mindset than the very professional uh, tackling every opening sort of uh, um, mindset. Yes, that's true. For example, I, I worked um, with Jeroen Piquet when he was quite young. And I thought it was good for him, it was good for me. Later on, but that was already when I was approaching 50, I worked with Judith Polgar, which was, was also beneficial for both of us. So what did you what did you notice in working with, with Judith Polgar? Well, I, I thought it was a real pleasure for me to see how sharp a uh, uh, tactical eye was and uh, how, how she could understand things uh, immediately and also picking up uh, strategical ideas. I think it helped her a lot to become uh, a real top player at the time. And you mentioned uh, Bobby Fischer a few minutes ago. I loved I loved your story in uh, Tim and Titans about meeting Bobby Fischer. And of course, you mentioned him being a, a chess hero of yours, if not a personal hero of yours. Um, could you could you tell us a, a little bit about what your interactions with with Fischer were like? Uh, the, the the meeting with Fischer, with Fischer was very special. Yeah, I, I think that uh, it's actually worth to to write more about it than what I did. I mean, uh, I was actually, um, I had a good opinion of him. I, I thought he was a, a, basically a friendly person. But he just got confused too often, and he was very uncertain in life. But what, what struck me in general, when uh, looking at what Fischer did in his career, is that he he was very resolute if he had to make decisions at the board. But after, but apart from that, in real life, he was very hesitant. He was very uncertain, and he didn't know what to do very often. That is a very interesting uh, thing to mention. Yeah, and of course, a lot has been written or speculated about the the underlying <laughs> psychology, whatever contributed to to that mindset. Um, you you mentioned. Uh, that Bessel Koch, uh, famed um, patron of chess in in those days, uh, and you spent a night with Fisher going to a, a disco, I believe. What 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 was that like? Yes, it was interesting. Yeah, he was uh, he was very um, friendly towards me, and we, we we just had actually basically we had a very good time uh, together that night. He stayed for one week in Brussels, but I met him only uh, that particular evening. We had a private dinner in a restaurant and he he was um, let's say he was incognito and it worked out well I think Bessel Koch uh, managed to do that very well to keep him there in Brussels for uh, such a long time and, and of course Fisher was known for pulling out his pocket chest uh, during dinners did did he pull it out at the uh, the disco as well or was he able to step well, away from the it, board 
things was a bit dark there, but uh, not only during dinner, yes, but also when we were just walking towards the restaurant, he, he had his pocket chair, so in the streets. Right. Which, which I thought was very peculiar. No, no, I don't know anybody else who would do that. Yeah, especially because players players of your level, the the chessboard is is nice to have, but I'm sure you can visualize the positions as well. Yes, but he he liked his uh, pocket chess. It was some sort of a magnetic uh, chess set that he said he bought in Germany. Yeah, well, he was very, he was very uh, fond of it, uh, and he used it very often also when he was uh, in the plane. Well, this, uh, this flights from uh, the states to Europe, long hours, and he was uh, analyzing normally. Yeah. yeah, I wonder whatever happened to that set. But speaking of chess sets, makes me think of another uh, legendary anecdote from Tim and Titans: the uh, the chess set that you came across in Lisbon that once belonged to Al Yekin. Um, so. Do you mind sharing briefly the story behind that? And I'm also curious to hear what, if you still have that set. Yeah, I still have the set. Yeah, basically, I uh, walked into a, uh, a shop with all sorts of uh, small antique uh, things, all, also, all sorts of antiquities, and it was very crowded in that shop. And I, I saw these uh, porcelain pieces, and I became interested in them. And uh, the, the owner said, "Well, yes, when the Great master came here to to Lisbon. This uh, he got this as a present, and it was also the the visit card of our kind. And the just uh, on, on the back he wrote. Uh, on, the, on one side it was printed that he lived on the chateau of his wife, but on the other side he had written with green ink, "Rua uh, Angola." And actually, uh, at the time when he moved to uh, Lisbon, the Rua Angola was, well, quite a new street. It had, had been built uh, just recently. And uh, it was not known that he lived in uh, in that street uh, temporarily. So that was also quite good for historians to know that. And I still have to set, yeah, I, I don't know. It has a, a beautiful place here in my home. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear. Do, do you have any photos of the set? I can make some photos, yeah. Yeah. That would be amazing. I'm sure our listeners would love to to see it because I know I'm not the only one with a great affinity for that book. And just leading with with the story about Alakine and of course or Alyekin and of course the the legendary story of the dream that you had about him. Um, and I notice it's sort of a theme throughout the book that you have these very vivid dreams. Um, do do you have a theory for for um, what contributes to these dreams? Uh, well, yeah. What can I say? I mean, I just uh, some people. Uh, don't remember any of their dreams, and I uh, sometimes remember them very vividly. And sometimes these dreams are very interesting. And uh, yes, and, and sometimes I write them down, which uh, which helps me because to, to memorize them. Because although my memory is good, normally you forget your dreams. So um, I, I think that uh, all the dreams that I put in the book were quite useful. Yeah, yeah, it's great stuff. Um, yeah. So. So, yeah, and I want to ask you about a few more players, of course, that you've written about. But first, we're going to take a break to hear from our sponsors, uh, Chessable. 
As always, Perpetual Chess is proud to be brought to you in part by Chessable.com. Chessable is a chess learning website that utilizes its move trainer technology to help you learn and remember opening lines, tactical patterns, and end games. It is endorsed by GM Magnus Carlson and features courses from I am John Bartholomew, Sam Shanklin, Wesley So, and so many others. Chessable has over 100,000 members and features hundreds of courses, both for free and for purchase. So if you haven't checked it out yet, please go to chessable.com and take a look around. Back to the interview. So Jan, of course, you've, you've interacted with so many legends over the years. You also wrote the great book, The Longest Game about uh, Kasparov and Karpov, um, you know, obviously legendary rivals who you played tons and tons of times and had memorable encounters with yourself. Um, and we have a question from a listen from a supporter of the show, Tom Edsel, related to that. So Tom writes in and he asks, he says, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the differences between, between playing Kasparov and playing Karpov, the over-the-board face-to-face experience rather than the chess per se. Karpov was uh, a very quiet uh, opponent, always. He was, uh, let's say, almost motionless. Also, probably also didn't have uh, that many emotions. And Kasparov was absolutely the opposite. He, he was like an open book. You could always see how he felt about the position. If he uh, if he was uh, worried, then he, uh, he would concentrate... Uh, just and and not have any uh, in his face would would just be con- just full of concentration. Otherwise, he could make so all sorts of grimaces if he liked his position. And it was interesting to it's completely different. Also, when I uh, looked at uh, photographs when uh, he was facing uh, Karpov, and also when when I saw some some of the footing of the matches, you could see. How he was, for example, when he became world champion in the last game, you could see that he was, somehow you could see him calculating the moves. Well, Karpov was completely motionless. And I, I've noticed this. Actually, in general, I thought that Kasparov was an easier opponent for me because he was an open book. But on the other hand, his theoretical knowledge was so impressive that only you had to get over the opening stage to have any chance to fight well against him. So psychologically, it was easier to play Karpov, but maybe not actually in the chess sense? Yeah, yeah, true. But, uh, but of course, Karpov was a very uh, pleasant opponent because he, he behaved simply very well, of course, always. Yeah, Yasser Sarwan did an interview recently with Chessable where he described Kasparov as a caged animal when he was playing over the board. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You could you could say that yeah in a, in a way he uh, but he was also expressing uh, you know his face and all these grimaces he did when he was uh, playing the computer, which was very interesting. Yeah, that so, is as interesting psychologically. Yes, because that that actually uh, meant that he didn't do it to disturb his opponent, but he just uh, yeah he just expressed his emotions. And did you ever have any conversations with Kasparov about his his demeanor at the board? No, no. <laughs> okay, no, I, I know you. Sorry, no, I don't think that is uh, something that is uh, obvious. This is the obvious thing to do. Uh, on the other hand, he um, when he played in Vaikanzea, I also described this in you in chess. 
he uh, made a round looking at the other games. And normally he, <laughs> he just, his face was expressing all sorts of, uh, well, dissatisfaction with the way other people played. It was <laughs> funny to see. I mean, if I were Kasparov, I guess I'd feel that way as well. Yes, that's probably true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Tom Edsel was also curious, and I know from having read a lot of your work, whether you have any good Korchinoi stories. Well, there's one, there's one story in the book here, yeah, but he said, he said about uh, some stories actually in the book. When he uh, mentioned uh, that the Yugoslavs are not serious. But uh, there's, I have actually, um, yes, there, there are all sorts of stories about Korchnoi, but uh, just uh, I normally got along with him quite well. He was, and, uh, of course, uh, just a difficult man also for himself. Yeah, difficult man with not the easiest of, of, of lives, but... Um... I, I remember when I played him in... Uh, in London in 1984, I had actually uh, broken my ankle uh, during a football match on the free day. And I was in pain, actually, and I was just uh, playing Kortsroy. And I was better with White, and uh, I offered him a draw. He actually uh, didn't respond and play the move. So I, I understood that he didn't hear my draw off, and I... Uh, I asked him, uh, Victor, uh, did you hear my draw offer? And then he said, uh, no. And then he uh, added, is it still valid? <laughs> and actually, I said, yes, it's still valid, and we agreed to a draw. That's actually an interesting story, because he really, he couldn't hear it, yeah. Throughout his life, or just in his later years? Well, I think... Well, in his later uh, career, but he, there are also stories about him that he offered a draw and his opponent uh, politely turned it down and uh, made a move. But he hadn't uh, heard this uh, politely turning it down and he uh, he just became very angry then, which, which, which means that actually, yeah, he made it sometimes very difficult for himself. Yeah. And... Um... A quote I enjoyed about Korchnoi in uh, Timmons Titans was, of course, he's legendary for having stayed so strong into his older years. Um, he, you, you asked, uh, or you, you said, when you're in your 40s, it gets tough. Not everyone has the energy and fanaticism of a Korchnoi. Um, could you expound upon that a little bit? Well, he he's one of the the players who was still very strong when he was uh, 70 years old. Yeah. You may recall that he uh, won the tournament in Biel, ahead of Grishuk and Switler, who were already top players. That was in 2001. He's from 1931. And uh, he basically played with a lot of energy. Otherwise, you don't win a tournament like that in Biel. And uh, yes, there's there's no one else in the history of chess who uh, came close to that. I also, uh, you may rem- uh, recall the story uh, about the tournament we played with four players, Portis, Lubojevic, and Korchnoi and me in Vajkanze, this honorary group. But Lubojevic won it. And during the, the, the final dinner, I was sitting there together with Korchnoi and with Portis, well, all, 
all three of us were quite disappointed. And then at some point, uh, Coach and I said, well, it's incredible that this amateur won ahead <laughs> of us professionals. This was also typical of Coach and I. <laughs> right. It's very funny. Um, so do you, do you have any theories? I mean, you mentioned he had a high energy level and that helped. Do you think that he had some other secret sauce to, to stay so strong? Yes, uh, he also worked on hard on chess. He was uh, he didn't use a computer. I know that. Also later on, when he was, uh, uh, let's say, I remember I played him in a match in uh, in Holland in Almelo in 2006, and we, we talked a bit. And he said, "Yes, I prepared this this line," but he said, "I don't do it with a computer." But I, I looked for a long time, and he he explained that to me, and that helped for him. That that worked for him. It helped him to uh, understand certain positions uh, better. I, I remember that uh, in '97 uh, he played a game against Yusupov and Ubeda, and then Yusupov was very surprised afterwards that that Kortsnoy said, "Well, this this system really, I I will have to study it much more. I, I don't understand it yet." And that I think that helped him also his energy level and his curiosity. Still working on chess at the at a high age. And you yourself, Jan, you're still quite active. You're obviously still very involved in chess. Uh, you still compete. You're still writing all the time. Um, how, how, how have you noticed your chess game change as, you, as your years advance? Well, I see that my, my energy level is not uh, uh, the same anymore. It's just you have to live with that. And uh, my understanding of, uh, of chess uh, maybe slightly better than in, the, than in the past because I have, of course, the computer who helps me to understand certain things, but still, if you don't have this energy level, if I look at uh, tournaments that I played, long end games, that I finally won, and then I had to play another game the same afternoon, I, I mean, I couldn't even think of doing that at this uh, moment. Yeah, I think that that's definitely the more the more typical experience even obviously most people are not playing at your level but nonetheless we can relate to the feeling of uh, having less energy as time goes on yes but on, on the other hand i'm very curious about uh chess theory still and i work for the yearbook of new in chess and i write surveys which normally cost me about uh, five days i look into a certain variation and i try to understand it I use the computer, I look at, uh, 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 normally I analyze eight crucial games in that particular line, and that uh, that's a very uh, nice thing to do. Is there any particular opening or line that you're keen to investigate right now? At the moment I'm writing about uh, Ragosin, uh, where White develops his bishop to f4, which, which, which Carlson has played, which Caravana has played. And uh, I never played that myself, and it was not very uh, popular for a long time. But uh, it's quite interesting to see something completely new and then to look at it. I actually have, um, at the moment, I'm writing my second survey on this, for the first part, because it's actually, I mean, uh, it's a huge uh, theoretical territory that I couldn't cover in one uh, survey. And... You mentioned uh, Caruana and Carlson. Do you have a favorite player amongst the current top players, Jan, just in terms of their style? 
Well, yes, uh, I, I like uh, Ding Liren's uh, style because it's it's not that easy to understand always, and his uh, his wins are sometimes very impressive because he he adds a certain uh, mysterious element to uh, the game. Of course, I also like uh, the way uh, Carlson plays, and Carvalho also has a very keen keen eye for the initiative and a very hard worker, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely um, has that reputation. Um, and of course, speaking about Caruana makes me think about uh, the the candidates tournament and of the world championship cycle, something you know very well. Um, so I'd like to jump to another question from Han Shu, um, in which he says, uh, in New in Chess Magazine, uh, issue two, 2020, you wrote about your favorites to win the candidates with Ding Liren and Fabiano Caruana being the front runners with the candidates to resume in November, fingers crossed, and MVL and Nepo in the lead with Caruana one point behind and Liren two points behind. Who do you expect to win? Uh, do you think it's an advantage for Caruana to play Norway chess before the candidates to get back into OTB chess? Well, I think... General, I think it's, it's it's a good idea for him to play Norway chess here because he 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 doesn't he's not a favorite anymore. That's quite clear. If you're one point behind, I mean things can happen, of course. Yeah, uh, there's still uh, uh, several rounds to go. But uh, on the other hand, well, I think that basically the the two leaders are simply the favorites in the in the tournament to uh, challenge uh, Mathis Carlson. I think the others who are on fifty percent, including Caruana, have chances. But but it should it should go well for them, and and uh, one of the leaders has to stumble in some sort of way, has to lose a game. Yeah, if if ne- Nepomniachtchi or or Nafashe Lakava loses a game against one of the other guys of fifty percent, of course, then it's a different story. That can happen easily. So yeah, I don't know. It just depends. But uh, I think in general, I think that. Uh, Fajé Lagrave is more stable. Nepomniachtchi is uh, can play very well, but he can sometimes uh, play very badly. So I think in general that uh, at the moment uh, Fajé Lagrave is the main favorite. And do you have a, a rooting interest, whether due to personal relationships or just someone that you think it would be more entertaining to see play Carlson? Um, no, I don't think so, no. No, I think that Ding Liren would have been quite interesting, but uh, there's no chance for him uh, to win the candidates. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm, I don't know them personally, so they're the top players, so I, I, I don't gear a little bit. But, but uh, uh, once I uh, spent an afternoon at his home to, to uh, analyze things, and but that's all. So I, I don't think that, uh, that there's any favorite for me from that angle. Okay. And what's your approach? A tournament like that, obviously, you're, in addition to being a world-class player, a chess fan like the rest of us. So do you clear your calendar and turn on the broadcast when an event like that is, is happening? Or are you just kind of checking in the positions when you can? Well, yes, I follow this live normally, especially the candidates tournament and also Norway chess I will follow live. At the moment, I, I'm a bit bored with all the internet tournaments and I... Uh, I haven't really followed that anymore, but uh, I followed the Bundesliga, which was yeah. Quite it was nice to have some classical chess back. Yes, yes, that is very important. I mean, I cannot imagine that you that all these top players have all this to play all these lousy games. It's also a problem <laughs> in you in chess. There are too many games of 
yeah, too low level actually that that you normally don't see in magazines. Yeah, it's a good point, and yeah. that th- hearing you talk about rapid, and I uh, I did talk with uh, Dirk, the editor of New and Chess, um, who who mentioned that you you still you have that classical chess sort of running through your blood, that it's your your favorite. But we did get a listener question relating to one of your rapid successes. So this question is from Jeff Anderson. But he says, uh, at the second Immopar Rapid Tournament in 1991, you beat Karpov 2-0 and scored 1.5 out of 2 against each Komsky, Anand, and world champion Kasparov. You won first prize of $75,000. Two questions. How much champagne did you drink after that wonderful result? And do you have any favorite games from that tournament? Yeah, well, yes, I... I had a quite a good celebration, yes. yes uh, <laughs> some good f- French champagne. Yeah, we were in Paris, so uh, that was no problem at all. I think that uh, that some of the games that I played were really good. Okay. I, I just start uh, in my book with the win over Kasparov. Could have been a brilliant game, but I misplayed it at a certain moment, and he was also short of time, and I finally won. But I think that, for example, the... Second game against Karpov was quite good. I didn't want to include it in my book because it was a rapid game, and I think it's somehow it's not fair to do that. But uh, it was it was quite good. Actually, both games against Karpov were good, and uh, all my wins in that uh, in that tournament were good. I, I could also have uh, beaten Kasparov in the second game, but he offered me a draw. I had actually I saw that I had a winning position. Had more time on the clock, but still, I thought, well, it, it's best to uh, to just uh, just accept the draw offer. And Although I was actually regretting it a bit later on. Well, winning the tournament is, uh, you know, it's a good result. <laughs> yes, that is the most important, of course. Yeah. So you have uh, some sort of. I mean, the second game with Black against Kasparov was difficult. He got. An advantage at some point, probably decisive advantage, only at one moment. And then he lost somehow the threat of the game in the end game. I played much faster, played better also. And then I thought, well, it's enough. But it was a very pleasant uh, victory for me, yes. And I, I played uh, at, uh, yes, at, at quite a high level for a rapid chess, yes, sure. And so that's one pleasant memory from your career. I'm sure you have many. Um, Jan Peter Schmidt actually wrote in and asked, what, are, what is the happiest and the most painful memory from your career? The, the happiest? Uh, I don't understand the question. Uh, what was the best? What is your fondest memory of your career? And what is the most painful memory? Of oh, your career? yes. Yeah, the fondest memory. Uh, well, I think that's... Every maybe this this Immopar tournament is my fondest memory, but uh, other wins in, in in tournaments as well. For example, Rotterdam '89 or Marda Plaza '82 when I beat Karpov and uh, just clinched the victory one well, in advance. And uh, there are many such uh, nice memories of tournaments. Of course, the the worst memory is probably my match against. Uh, Yusupov in the Tilburg, 86. Because that was really bad that I that somehow I collapsed at a certain moment. I had a, I had a very busy schedule before that and, and I didn't have time to really prepare. And for a while I could play in a match, but at some point 
and didn't have energy anymore. And it was a very important uh, match for me because uh, in '85 I was really strong. I won the interzonal with, uh, with a very impressive score. Maybe it's also one of my good memories, this interzonal in Tusco, '85, where I won with 12 out of 15. So, yes, but I, I'm definitely this match against Yusupov was one of the, the worst. Although I must say, of course, that he played well. Right. And of course, you were, as you mentioned, one of the top players in the world, kind of at the peak of your powers then, and also sort of a national celebrity in the in the Netherlands. So did you feel external pressure at the time when you have a disappointment like that? Did it did it just bother you on a personal level or did you feel like uh, other people were, were creating pressure on you as well? Well, possibly. Yeah. I, I, at the time, I felt that sometimes uh, for me, it was best to have my... Uh, successes elsewhere, far away from home. And sometimes uh, the the press was not very kind when I failed. I mean, uh, it was somehow showed their disappointment. At least this match against uh, Yusupov taught me not to read the newspapers anymore, not to read any reports during a tournament. And I have kept that principle. Yeah, I found a uh, surprising when they were planning the 2020 world championship match before coronavirus and all this stuff, um, that Carlson didn't want to play in Norway, but, um, and actually explicitly said that he would not, but hearing you talk about it, I think gives, gives a little more perspective on how challenging it can be. Yes, that's true. I, I can uh, understand Carlson very well here. And, uh, I had the same uh, feeling in, uh, 93 when we had to look for, uh, uh, the venue for for my match against uh, Karpov, the FIDE president Kampomanis at the time uh, pressed very hard to have it in Holland, and I tried to stop him doing that. And, uh, it, it's certainly not not that easy to play uh, in your own country. There's, there's more pressure, yeah, sure. Yeah, that that makes sense. And now these days, when you're in the Netherlands, do you? I mean, obviously, you live there. Do you feel? Uh, do you feel as bright a spotlight, or do you feel like things have settled down and you can just live your life now? Yeah, it is much uh, much better to li- live a quiet life. All this attention, it, uh, it just uh, gets too much. Especially uh, in '92 when I uh, qualified for the uh, Magic and Short, and also Fischer started playing against against again against Pusky. I got so much. Uh, request from the media it was simply uh, I couldn't cope with it that well uh, and that uh, that actually hurt my chest at the time yeah un- understandably um, so how do you spend your days actually I have a listener question so I'll go ahead and, and read it actually I think this is from Hans Schurt as well sorry bear, bear with me one minute there's a lot of uh, listener questions so um, a lot to cover um, oh, yes. So Han, his final question was, now that you're 68, what is your preferred mix of chess activities during a day? Uh, writing, annotating games, end game composition, playing, commentating, teaching. What, what do you like to do most, Jan? Well, I don't teach at the moment. So that, uh, that is not part of my, uh, my, my daily uh, business. I just, but I, what I normally do is... is, is uh, the best part of my day is just uh, to create endgame studies. And uh, apart from that, I, I like to work on books. 
of articles for New NHS, articles for surveys, for the yearbook. All this is, is, uh, is keeping me busy for at least six hours a day. That's wonderful. And of course, you're known to also, and it shows in your writing that you're well read outside the, the world of chess. Are you still maintaining an interest in literature more broadly? Yeah, sure. I have uh, written uh, essays on uh, different writers, and uh, some of it will be published in, uh, in Holland quite soon, in Dutch. Uh, for example, an essay on, uh, on Borges, on uh, Dostoevsky. Uh, some Dutch writers, and uh, yes, that, that is something that I like to do. I've also um, written a book about uh, Harry Moulis, who's a Dutch writer, and uh, in general, I'm a great lover of literature, all sorts of literature. I've also written uh, an essay on uh, the Japanese writer Akutagawa. Of course, I'm familiar with Borges and Dostoevsky, but I have to admit, I'm not familiar with Akutagawa. What's his writing style? It's very uh, sharp and interesting, and also a bit gruesome. He, um, he, he just committed suicide at the same age as Van Gogh. Oh, and he was a great admirer of Van Gogh also. But he was a great writer, but uh, not that well known. And... Another thing that's striking in your writing, Jan, is um, sort of a, a worldly perspective. You talk about going to the museums and the cities you go, um, visiting the city museum. Do you what what venues and and places are the most memorable? I mean, you've probably I can't even imagine how many countries and places you've been. What what are the favorites of the places you've traveled? I think that that Paris is one of my uh, favorite cities. Musée d'Orsay, for example, and. Uh, but 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 it's hard to say because I like also uh, other uh, cities very well. Just uh, for example, I like London very much, yeah, and I like the Tate Gallery. For example, I like uh, the Prado in Madrid. Talking about museums. And do you still travel frequently these days? I mean, before the again <laughs> before the virus. Yes, but not anymore. <laughs> I right. hardly leave uh, uh, Arnhem at all at the moment. Yeah, but of well, course, uh, when this this uh, this COVID uh, Corona business is over, I will start to travel again. But uh, but not before that time. That's I got and an invitation still... for Prague, but I mean, it's impossible to uh, to go there. And also, I had an invitation for Reykjavik. Of course, you probably know that, but it has been postponed. Yeah, for listeners, I actually played Jan in uh, the Reykjavik Blitz tournament in 2006. You guys can can guess the result. <laughs> but, but so I had one one brief interaction before uh, in in the distant past. Um, and yeah, in Reykjavik, of course, you write about movingly in in your your writing. Um, uh, what's your favorite memory from Reykjavik? All sorts of memories. Also, uh, going to to places like the the, the Gullfoss and the uh, and the guys here and yes, um, the Singvalier, the, the beautiful environment and also Reykjavik itself. You know, I I like the the old church on the hill and uh, and also the, the the swimming pools with with the heated water. Uh, all sorts of memories come when I uh, think about Reykjavik. Also, I like the uh, I don't know whether this pub still exists, but Gregor Ostung was a a pub that I used to go to, which was quite nice. I mean, people 
you know whether it still exists or not? I'm, I don't know offhand. Um, <laughs> Probably not, yeah. <laughs> it's a long time ago. And, s- and also, of... I must say that I like the Icelandic sagas very much. Yeah, it, it's a wonderful country. And I, I've recommended to listeners before that it's a tournament worth visiting. And I think they're planning something. I think I saw something online where, despite the virus, they're, they're going to run a tournament. So, um, And certainly, as you say, when the virus is over... Uh, recommend going um so you mentioned uh going to pubs of course something again you you write about frequently something you like to do to relax um and one i again there's so many stories and i don't want to take too much of your time but i've got to hear the stories about tal uh, to the extent you're able to tell uh you you tell some amazing stories about spending time with and and drinking with tal over the years Yes, that is true, but there are indeed many stories. Yeah, I got along with Tal very, Tal very well, but uh, normally, uh, yeah, but he was actually, um, I'm basically a wine drinker, but he didn't drink wine. He, he was normally just uh, going for uh, whiskey and, and vodka. <laughs> yeah, but very good company, I must say. He was a very good singer as well. Yeah, I, it must have been must have been quite a lot of fun. Yes, that was really a privilege to have known him so well. Um, yeah, I, I, a lot of jealous chess players listening, myself included. And this calls to mind one more listener question. I'm going to try to get to them all. This one is from Brett Lynn, who asks if you were to be stranded on a deserted island with one other GM, who would you like it to be? Ah, it should be alive, yeah. This, this, this GM. I don't think so. I don't think we then need to. I would lim- probably still pick Tal, yeah. Spassky, yeah, although maybe. with Spassky. yeah, although Tal without as many people around, I feel like it might. I mean, of course, I never met him, obviously, but just from the legends, it seems like he would he would be at his best with other people to sort of uh, enter the picture and contribute to the stories. Yes, yes, sure, yeah. <laughs> but Spassky would also be a good choice. Yeah, I, will, I always get along with him very well. Do you have any favorite memories of time spent with with Spassky? Well, yes. Also, when when I met uh, Bobby Fischer, Spassky was there as well. Yeah. This the same story, the same week in Brussels. Yes, he was also there during the dinner, and he he got very well with Fischer. That uh, that was amazing. Yeah. He, at he, some, he... some moment, uh, Fischer was wearing uh, the the same. Uh, jacket and pants that he had been wearing during the Reykjavik match. And then uh, Spassky told him, you, you know what, uh, Bobby, what are these old bones doing this, this jacket? <laughs> yeah. It was quite nice, yeah. He was having a very good sense of humor in general. So, Jana, are you okay on time if I give, uh, ask you a few more questions? Yes, that's okay, yeah. Excellent. Thank you. So this one is from another friend of the show. He's been on the show, International Master Kari Christensen, um, who writes in to ask, he says, uh, you were born in 1951 and therefore raised in a country where creativity and society was deemed to explode. In football or soccer, the revolutionary total football was developed, which had a large impact even today. Soccer legend Johan Cruyff was the most prominent representative for the new way of thinking. As Timon, besides being a strong player, has been very creative, then the question is, does he think this creativity to a large part is due to the favorable environment in Holland in the 60s and 70s, or is he just a born genius? 
um, I think that in general that 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 must have contributed to uh, my uh, successes. But also, I think the environment just at my home, just my parents, uh, uh, gave me a very good feeling in general in life. So that also contributed. And could you describe you've I've read a bit about sort of uh, life in Amsterdam, going to cafes. Um, there was a, a group called um, the Circle, I believe it translates to in English, the de, de Kring. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Uh, what was um, what was that experience like? What was your day to day life like in your your twenties and thirties? Well, you're talking about uh, the Kring. Like, that actually. It was normally in the in the night hours. I mean, after midnight, it became interesting <laughs> there. So we, we normally went to sleep very late. I, I used to meet people like uh, Donna Ray, Sosonko there, Harto. And uh, on the other hand, uh, yeah, I, I was going out quite often. Now, I don't live in Amsterdam anymore. I mean, I've been living there for 37 years. And uh, I always enjoyed uh to go out but nowadays i don't do that anymore yeah i it can uh like you say your energy anyone's energy is not what it used to be as, as time goes on yeah yeah that is true of course but that's, i'm still a wine lover yeah um excellent <laughs> glad to hear it um and of course in tim and titans you at the end you have a great biography obviously or uh, extremely well read in the the field of chess, but our listeners always like to get uh, book recommendations. Um, uh, of course, you're you're well steeped in the classics, and you've written about it uh, again in Tim and Titans and other works. Are there any are there any books in the past few years that have impressed you? Are you keeping up with chess literature? Not that much. No, I must uh, admit that I haven't read any uh, any other uh, books uh, recently. No. Too busy with uh, fiction. <laughs> yes, normally I uh, read uh, books uh, just outside chess, yeah. I mean, if you talk about the past, I think that uh, in the past I was impressed, for example, by uh, by the, the games of Keras that are commented by himself, for example. That was very interesting. Fischer's book, My 60 Memorable Games, was something that uh, really, really was very impressive. And if, if let's say, uh, Magnus Carlsen would come out with a games collection or Ding Lieren or Caravan or just mention any of these very strong players and they have written it themselves, I would certainly read it. Now, a lot of these players, of course, Magnus, I also hope he writes a book someday, um, but a lot of them will do videos. Magnus, of course, has made a few courses for Chessable and others. You you might just find like a postmortem online on YouTube or something like that. Are, does, does that sort of thing interest you or does it not hold the same allure as a book to you? No, I don't look at that uh, sort of stuff. Also, I, when I follow tournaments, I just look at the moves. And uh, so the, the computer uh, evaluation at Chess Bomb it is normally a bit superficial. Later on, I go through the games with a computer, and, uh, and I'm interested in that. But uh, I don't follow the comments. Now, if, if somebody writes a book, that I believe that is serious. That makes sense. And how much time, if you're playing through, like you mentioned, you'll be you'll be following Norway chess. You were following the Bundesliga. How much time do you typically spend looking at a game? Well, depends. Yeah, if uh, if the game interests me. For example, there was an interesting ending uh, in the Bundesliga 
between Laporte and Sprenger. Where Black, Sprenger was an exchange up, Rook against Bishop, three pawns each side. I think Black should have won, but it, 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 Laporte defended very well and was a draw in the end. And uh, I spent a bit more time on such things, yeah, because I have written also about uh, this type of endgame. Okay. And do you ever tune in for commentary on these events, or are you generally just watching on your own? Yes, I watch on my own, yeah. Okay. And have you had, uh, I feel like someone with uh, your chess knowledge and your your stories and your experience, you would be an amazing commentator. Have you had many opportunities to, to do that? I have done uh, it in the past, yeah, but not uh, in recent years. I mean, uh, if somebody would invite me, I would probably uh, do it after Corona, right. of course, yeah. Yes. Okay. We That, that needs to happen. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that, that would be amazing. So um, I think this is the last listener question, Jan. It's from uh, Thomas. Oh, man, he, he sent me how to pronounce his name, and I forgot to copy it. Sorry, Thomas. Uduku, I believe. But he says, um, I think it's wonderful that Jan Timmons still plays competitive chess at a local club where I assume he plays much lower rated players. I think that many players of his caliber would be less motivated in such a context, but I assume he is not. How does he keep his motivation and focus while playing with lower rated players? Well, I think it's also something that Over did in the, when he was getting older. He he still kept playing. I mean, you just like to do it. I mean, I have my club Wageningen, and I'm uh, and I know the people very well there. I got paid for what I do, and I got paid reasonably well. So I think it is in a way something that I would love to do, but I still love to do. The, the problem is in Holland that if we have these club competitions, they can move any mix any move, uh, board order that they wish. Yeah? So if if I'm on board one, normally they try to put some weak player there, and then sometimes I don't play on board one for that reason. Why do you think? Why do they do it that way? Because I think they will lose anyway. Ah, okay, so yeah. strategical. Yeah. yeah. Because I don't play the highest league. It is the second highest league where my club Wageningen plays. Yeah, well, as Thomas says, it's an amazing opportunity for the other player to, to get to play you. Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, okay, well, well, Jan, I want to thank you for being so generous with, with your time. Um, is, there, is there anything else? I mean, of course, I want to bring it back to uh, Timmons Triumphs. It's a, an amazing book, and I recommend it strongly. I, um, I'd like to... I, of course, was getting ready for this interview and going through a lot of your stuff. I, I had already read Timmons Titans, and I picked it up to just sort of go through my notes, and I ended up rereading the whole thing. <laughs> that, that's how much I enjoy Timmons Titans. So if listeners haven't read that, I recommend it as well. But do, do you have anything else to add before um, we let you go, Jan? No, no. I think I think I've covered a lot of different sort of questions. I think that's fine. Okay, glad to hear it. And we should say Timmons Triumphs. Um, by the time this will be out, by the time this should be out, it should be wild, widely available in the United States as it already is in Europe. It's already available on Forward Chess. So uh, wonderful book, as are all of Grandmaster Timmons' books. And uh, Jan, this has been quite an honor for me. So thank you so much for uh, taking the time to do this interview. That was also my pleasure. Special thanks, as always, to my producer, Matthew Passy, and thanks to those who continue to help spread the word about Perpetual Chess. You can spread the word via word of mouth or positive reviews on podcast platforms. 
We are up to 98 written reviews on Apple Podcasts, and only one of them aggravates me. Amazing support. By the way, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at BennyFischel1, or join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group and continue the conversation about the latest interview. You should also check out the Perpetual Chess Instagram page. But more than anything, I want to express my gratitude to those who provide financial support to the show. Most of all, I want to thank Chessable.com for sponsoring the show and to everyone who kicks in via PayPal or the Perpetual Chess Patreon page to help sustain and improve the show. And while they're at it, find out about future guests and send in some great questions. So without further ado, I'd like to give special thanks to the following people and entities. They are Chessable.com, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Abysmal Depths of Chess blog, the Apprentice Twitch channel, Andrew Alharji, Andrew Bach, Andy Ryerson, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porteau, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, the Charlotte Chess Center, the Chess Central's Chess blog, ChessMood.com, Chris Flanagan, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, Drake Domingue, I am Eric Rosen, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Harfst, Greg Natel, I am Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, James Kennedy, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, King Sell, Lucio Casada Silva, The Law Offices of Stuart Katz, LilaAnalysis.com for cloud-based Leela Engine Analysis, Michael Kahn, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zelazny, Mr. Mike Shahadi, the famous Mr. Dodgy, the Nerd Nays Twitch channel, Peter Sadi, the Playmore Chess Academy of the Hamden Chess Club, Reuven Fisher, Robert Coucher, Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stefan Kelty, Stephen Martinez, Thomas Stenix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryan of StrongChess.com, Todd Kennedy, Wayne Beam, and I would also like to thank Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Andy Ryerson, FM Andre Terakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Anidi Deer, Barry Hessian, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Bruce Scott, Brian Tillis of Palm Beach Chess, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Wayne Scott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Costa Carras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Bleskacek, David Cramley of Chessable.com, Dalen Shelton, Dirk Decker, Drake Domingue, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ethan Smith, Hallelujah Cat, Ian Mason, FM, Donnie Ariel, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Latart Lavoie, Frank Tortoris MD, Frank Zananis, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barter, Giovanni Russo, Han Schut, Harish Srinivasan, Jacob Kovach, Jacques Perry, James Aspinwall, James Benastia, James Muir, Jason Woolham, Jadeep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Horland, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, JJ Stranad, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, 
Grandmaster Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Pryor, I am Kostya Kowitski, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Ryforth, Laura Bogowski, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Miguel Arispide, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Solomon, Neil Bruce, Negmat, Milad Janov, Olaf Mueller Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hollenbach, Robert Turner, Roy Yearwood, Ryan Berg, The Say Chess YouTube Channel, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwater, Shane Unger, Stefan Roller, WGM Tata of Abrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Kolmanich, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Vishnu Srikumar, William H. Brock, William Juniper, William Hogarth, William Peterson, FM Zhao Chang of Chess1000.com, and Jivko Storyanov. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I will catch you all next week. Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.